Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. Mark chapter 9, verse 42. Let's stand as we read God's word. Get your aerobics in, your exercise in. Up, down, up, down, up, down. It's a leg day at church. All right, here we go. Mark chapter 9, verse 42. The Holy Spirit says today through John Mark, here Jesus is speaking. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You may be seated. Now that is not a verse of scripture that you see on very many bumper stickers. (laughs) That story didn't make the, the kid's storybook Bible. Um, it's a shocking statement. Maybe you're new to church. It's your first time here. Wow. Welcome. (laughs) Welcome. We're so glad you're here. Here's the question I want to ask you this morning. Do, Do you believe in hell? Do you believe in hell? There was a recent study, literally about a year ago, a study was done in in America and found that 72% of Americans believe in heaven. 62% of Americans also believe in hell, but yet only 1% believe they're going there. Hell is not a popular topic. It's something that people probably say daily. (laughs) But in popular culture, hell doesn't exist. And even in a lot of churches, We don't talk about this subject. We we don't want to take it seriously. There was a Times article that was written a few years ago, and it said that the reason why is it's just too negative. Churches are under enormous pressure to be consumer-oriented. Churches today feel the need to be appealing rather than demanding. And so in our day, in our 21st century Western American church, and in our society, hell is dismissed, it's denied, or it's diminished. But yet, this morning, we're left with one very important question. Did Jesus believe in hell? The answer, according to our text, is emphatically yes. As a matter of fact, if you read the Bible, Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. 
The majority of what we know about hell comes from how Jesus described it. It's not some sort of medieval contraption to manipulate people. According to Jesus, it's reality. Tim Keller says in his book, The Reason for God, if Jesus, the Lord of love and author of grace, spoke more often about hell and in more vivid and blood-curdling manners than anyone else, it must be a crucial truth. So this morning, maybe you don't want to talk about it. Maybe you don't want to think about it. Maybe it's something that you just wish you hadn't have shown up this morning for. But the reality is, is that even if you don't want to talk about it, if it is real, and for some of you, that's a big if, if hell is a real place, then wouldn't we want to talk about it? And wouldn't we want to make sure that we're not going there? And wouldn't we want to make sure that no one else we know goes there? Well, that's what Jesus is doing here. These statements that Jesus is saying here are actually a part of the oral tradition of the apostles. It's known as the Logia. They appear in different contexts within the other gospels, but Mark puts it in its contextual, chronological context in which Jesus is teaching his disciples. Jesus is not speaking to the Sadducees, the Pharisees, or the Romans about hell. Here in this moment, he's teaching his disciples about hell. Because Jesus is teaching about what it means to truly follow him. And not everyone who follows him is actually headed where they think they are. But you have to make sure. Jesus is teaching this statement on the heels of his disciples arguing over who is the greatest. He's teaching this after the disciples have rebuked and rejected another believer who was doing a mighty work in his name. And so Jesus speaking to the 12, and remember one wasn't a Christian, yet he was following Jesus. Here in this section, Jesus is teaching his disciples about the severity of sin and the reality of hell. So let's unpack that really quickly. Number one, the severity of sin. The first thing that Jesus is telling his disciples is that we need to be serious about not causing others to sin. In verse 42, Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. What, who are the little ones? Are the little kids, new believers? Uh, scholars go back and forth. I, I think essentially it's anyone who believes in Jesus, anyone who says that they believe in Jesus. And this is, again, given in light of the disciples' reaction to a man who was following Jesus but wasn't following them. Jesus is now saying, listen, your actions have consequences. How you treat people matters. And so Jesus is warning these disciples and us today that we better not intentionally or unintentionally cause others to fall away spiritually. The word to sin here can be interpreted to fall away or to depart from the faith. Jesus says it would be better for a great millstone to be hung around your neck than to be thrown into a sea. Now, a millstone is a large stone, probably weighing a few tons. And maybe you've seen these. These are, these are stones that would be moved uh, by oxen or donkeys. They would grind the wheat or grind different things. And it would be huge. And so this is like the hugest, the biggest. That's, I don't know if hugest is a big word or, or is a real word or not. It's like strategery. I don't know. But it's big. It's huge, right? <laughs> and, and he says it would be better for that to be hung around your neck and thrown into the sea. Now, being thrown into the sea was actually a form of Roman execution. And so Jesus says it is better to be on death row and drowned into the ocean than to abuse your influence and cause another person to fall away spiritually because of your actions. In other words, what Jesus is saying here. To the disciples and all of us in this room is that you have to take your influence on other people seriously. See, we're all in relationships of influence. 
Husbands influence wives, wives influence husbands, parents influence children, friend influences friend, coworker, coworker, boss, employee, church leader, church member. If you are in leadership at all, that is influence. And all of us have the ability to impact others either positively or negatively. See, either by your life and your actions, you present a clearer picture of Jesus to the world, or by your actions, you cause legitimate questioning of Jesus to other people. And how many people do you know have been turned off by the hypocrisy of people who call themselves Christians? Some of the meanest people I know in the world call themselves Christians. How many of you have been hurt and your walk with God hurt by others who profess to know Christ? Jesus says, you have to take this seriously. Have you ever heard of a guy named Mahatma Gandhi? Gandhi, who was a leader of the Indian uh, independence against, uh, uh, from Great Britain. He was a, a leader of that movement. Uh, he uh, was, grew up Hindu. He traveled to Britain. He traveled to America. He actually went to churches in Britain and America. And he came back. And here's a statement that he's made that I've stuck with me for many, many years. There's within a context of other things that he said, but this one, these two sentences really are haunting. Here's what Gandhi says. He says, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians because your Christians are so unlike your Christ. I mean, how many people have been hurt by the church? How many of you have been hurt by, the, by a church? How many people in our community have been hurt by this church? Think of the hypocrisy. People who are in leadership, people who are known and notoriety, they call themselves Christians. And when the curtain is open and the hypocrisy is seen for what it is, people are offended. People say, well, if that's what Christianity is, I don't want it. How many people have been physically, mentally, emotionally, and even sexually abused by people who call themselves Christians? These are sad things and these are real realities. And so Jesus says, listen, your job is to help others flee from sin, not run to sin. That's why within our discipleship strategy is a level of accountability, not complicity. That we here want to confront those in sin rather than just merely tolerate their sinfulness. We, we have to do what it takes to help others from stumbling because of our own sinfulness. I have the privilege of being the, the dad of three great kids. And as a parent, if you're a parent in this room, all of you have that privilege of being a parent. And every one of us who are parents or even grandparents in this room set an example to our children. What kind of example do we set to our kids? You know, it's been said that parenting is seeing all your flaws and weaknesses walking before you on two legs. See, see, remember, parents, what you prioritize, they prioritize. What you marginalize, they marginalize. And so, therefore, you can't think in, in, in your mind that if I marginalize something that they're going to prioritize, or if I prioritize, no, it's normally there's an example there. And, and we sometimes think, listen, if you want your kids to prioritize a life living for Jesus, it has to be a priority in your life. You cannot marginalize and expect them to prioritize. But our job as parents is to set an example, not of perfection, but of faithfulness, passion, and love for God, even though we're flawed. Because we're gonna mess up. So Jesus is not saying, well, if you mess up and you cause someone, no, you have to be honest, you have to be open, you have to say you're sorry, but we should not intentionally or even unintentionally do anything that would cause anyone to fall away from the faith. 
So he says, be serious. Be serious about not causing others to sin. Number two, now it gets deeper. He says, be serious about keeping yourself from sin. Verse 43, verse 45, verse 47, Jesus goes with, Jesus goes with further warnings. He says, if your hand, if your, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Now, let me just go ahead and say this now. Jesus is not being literal here. I don't wanna expect next week, see some of y'all limping in <laughs> with an eye patch on. I'm not expecting that, all right? The Bible is against self-mutilation. This is hyperbolic hyperbole. Pardon me, this is metaphoric hyperbole. This is language is meant to be shocking. Jesus is saying, take measures to eliminate, take drastic measures to eliminate sin in your life. Your spiritual life is worth whatever extreme measures you have to take in your physical life to keep you from sin. Why? Because sin is dangerous. Sin is deadly. Sin is destructive. There are certain things that we have to cut out of our lives to live for Jesus. We have to do whatever it takes to deal with our sin at any cost. John Owen, who is a Puritan, wrote in his book, The Radical Mortification of Sin, he says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Sin is a deadly, aggressive snake. You know, the good a good snake is a dead snake. <laughs> Amen? Those of you who love snakes, I'm praying for you. <laughs> Sin is not a pet. Sin is a predator. It's deadly. It's toxic. You saw in the video, I was in Tanzania and I was on a safari and went down and you see all these beautiful, I mean, it felt like the Lion King. You know, I was looking for Simba. And all these animals are out there. They look so cute. They look so cuddly, but they are dangerous. They will kill you. That's what sin is. See, sin will thrill you before it kills you. Sin will fascinate you before it assassinates you. And that's why Jesus says you have to attack it before it attacks you. Now, let's think through this. Reality is, is that even if you did literally cut off your hand or cut off your foot or pluck out a, an eye, it doesn't mean you won't be tempted again. You just will have one less limb, but you'll still be tempted what Jesus is getting at is that you have to treat your sin so serious that you will do whatever it takes to get rid of it. So you stop justifying it. You stop explaining it. You stop excusing it. You stop renaming it. You stop minimizing it. And you call it by name and you kill it and you run. How many of you have seen these movies or TV shows where there's a bad guy and a good, good person and the bad guy and the good person have this fight and the good person has the upper hand on the bad person and has that moment where they can eliminate the bad person, if you know what I mean? And they don't do it. And then they turn around and what does the bad guy do? He's gonna, he's gonna get them again. And I'm like, come on, man! Finish the job, right? Anybody else? I mean, you put your halo on later. Anybody else in the room like, hey, 
You say in your mind, you say, kill the sucker, all right? That's what we have to do with sin. You can't manage sin, you gotta kill sin. You can't compartmentalize sin or try to control it. You know, sometimes we say, you know what? It's impossible for me to kill the sin of lust. It's impossible for me to kill the sin of pride or selfishness. So as long as I don't let these things get out of hand, as long as I make a little bit of progress, I'll be okay. And even if I don't make progress, I'm under grace. Jesus is saying you can't manage your sin because it will destroy your walk. You got to kill it. You got to kill it and run. It can't be live and let live. It's got to be live or die. And you got to make it die because it will kill you. It's like you get a, somebody, you go to your doctor and your doctor says, you got cancer. You say, oh, I got cancer. Great. I'll just let it grow. <laughs> no, it'll kill you. What does this mean to you practically? It may mean that you have to end an unhealthy relationship in your life. It may mean you have to quit your job because your job is a toxic work environment that causes you to go deeper and deeper into sin. It may mean that you gotta get rid of social media. It may mean that you need some sort of content filter on your phone or computer or some accountability partner. In other words, Jesus said you have to do whatever it takes. You have to set whatever boundary you need in order to kill sin in your life. So, I mean, you're all probably saying, you know, I mean, you come to church. You say, well, I agree with that. It's like the guy who went to church, was talking to his friend about what the preacher said. And the guy said, well, what did the preacher preach about? And the guy said, well, he preached about sin. And the guy said, well, what did he say about sin? He said, well, the preacher said he was against it. <laughs> We're all against sin in this room. And we all struggle. But what should be the incentive? The reality of hell. Jesus says, hell is real. In this text, Jesus has been making comparisons. He says, it's better to have this happen to you than that happen to you. Neither thing are good things, but one is far worse than the other. So it is better to have a flat tire on the side of the road than to be hit by a Mack truck, right? It's better, it's better. So the overall point that Jesus is making in this text is this, is that anything is better than hell. Anything is better than hell. The worst thing you can imagine is better than hell. In this is these three things, hand and foot and eye, is a Hebrew parallelism. This is meant for emphasis. If your hand, if your foot, or if your eye causes you to sin, it is better for you to lose them and go to heaven than to keep them and go to hell. Why? Because hell's the worst thing you can imagine. I mean, the worst kind of suffering on this earth pales in comparison to the reality and suffering of hell. You know, we, in our vernacular, we tend to use hell in a lot of different situations. So we'll say, war is hell. We'll say, my life is a living hell. We'll even say that going to Disney in the summer is the seventh circle of hell. <laughs> Some of you this week, driving on a Immokalee is, and you know, finish the sentence, all right? The word hell here is the word Gehenna. It's, it referred to a real place, the Valley of Hinnom. It's on the south side of Jerusalem. If you ever go to Israel with me, we, we drive by it. In Jesus' day, it was a reviled trash dump. Before that, it was used as a place to worship a false god, Molech, in which people actually sacrificed their children to that false god. 
Good King Josiah tore that altar down, tore that place out and put a trash dump there where the poor would often bury their dead and trash would be set on fire. And so in Jesus's day, it was a, a, a smoldering, smelly, nasty, vile trash dump. Now in, in, in Florida, the only mountains in Florida are trash dumps, right? <laughs> but they're not on fire. This is a trash dump on fire. Jesus uses the word Gehenna 12 times in the Gospels. And, and in doing so, he's not saying this is literally hell. He's not saying the Valley of Hinnom is hell. He's saying this is what hell is like. In the first century disciples' minds, this was the worst, most putrid, horrible place on the face of the earth. And so Jesus says, take what that is and multiply it by infinity, and that's hell. Jonathan Edwards said that when metaphors are used in scriptures, when the metaphors are used in scriptures to describe spiritual things, they fall short of the literal truth. So Jesus, in speaking about hell, is saying this, is that hell should scare the sin out of you. Because hell's not worth it. I mean, think about this. We'll use modern thinking here. According to Jesus, here's what he would be saying. It is better for you to never hold your children. It is better for you to never run your hair, run your fingers through your wife's hair. It is better to not brush your own teeth or drive a car. It is better to be paralyzed. It is better to never see the sunset or the sunrise, never to see your kids grow up than go to hell. Why? Because three times he calls it an unquenchable fire. Now, whether it is a literal fire or a metaphoric fire, it ain't a good place. See, hell is not merely a crisis eternity. It's a place where God's glory is absent, but his eternal wrath is present. Somebody says, I'm just gonna go to hell because God isn't there. No, God is there, but not in his grace, but in his wrath. According to Jesus and according to scriptures, hell is an eternal conscious torment. It's not a place where sinners go to party with the devil. I don't care what the, what the Grammys showed. It's a place that nobody wants to go to. He says it's where the worm doesn't die. Now, Jesus is now referring to maggots. Maggots that were part of, that were eating the trash and the dead corpses that, that the fire would destroy the maggots because the flesh, when it's consumed, the maggots die. But in hell, the flesh isn't consumed and so the maggots don't die. You say, well, that's very gross. Well, Jesus doesn't want you to think that hell's pretty. Hell is not merely going out of existence. It's not just annihilation. It's not, you're like Rover, you're dead all over. No, it, it's a place where you continue to exist forever in the wrath of God. Again, is it literal fire or not? C.S. Lewis said it, it's, it's hell is like an internal murmuring. It's murmur, murmur, murmur for all eternity. Never happy, never satisfied, never, never, never at rest. Hebrews says it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Jesus says, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Revelation says, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Jesus says, you don't want to go there. Anything is better than hell. And so some of you, you're sitting here, and maybe you're like, you're new to church, or you're like, you should come in because somebody made you come here today, and you're like, I don't like this. Some of you are like, how can, I, how can you Christians say, how can a loving God send people to hell? And then I hear people say, you know, I can never worship a God who sends someone to hell forever. 
You know, I hear, I hear people say that. When, when I hear people say, you know, I can never worship a God who, normally it's, I will never worship a God who disagrees with me or does things different than me. And when they say that, they're basically saying, you know what, I won't worship a God that isn't me. And we judge God. But listen, we have three pounds of fallen brains. How are we to judge God? And for those of you concerned about the love of God, the reality of hell does not diminish the love of God. Just as God is loving, he's also holy. The most quoted attribute in, in Scripture is not love, it's God's holiness. When the angels are flying around the throne, they don't say love, 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 they say holy, holy, holy. Because every attribute of God is holy. And if you emphasize one attribute over another, you diminish them both. And because God is infinitely holy, any sin results in an infinite punishment. You say, well, I don't agree with that. How can the punishment fit the crime? This is wrong. This is crazy. This doesn't make sense. Let me describe it this way. It's an illustration you've heard me say before. But let's say you came up to me after church and you punched me in the face. I don't know if some of you have thought about that. <laughs> some of you thought about it. What do you think will happen to you? Well, one, I may turn the other cheek. But more than likely, Eastern Kentucky will come out An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And a baseball bat's where it's at. That's what Fred Sanford said anyway. <laughs> you punch me, I may punch, the worst case, I punch you back, I might even miss. Worst case, you get a black eye. You go in to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and you go punch the president in the face, this isn't political, you go punch the president in the face, don't make it political. What do you think is going to happen to you? What's the worst thing? You're going to be dead. <laughs> What's the difference between me and the president? Position. Position. Well, God is infinitely higher and greater than the president. And therefore, a sin against an eternal, infinitely holy God requires an infinite, eternal consequence. We don't get it because we think we're all that, but God is far greater than what we can imagine. So the question is not how can a loving God send anyone to hell, but the question is how can a holy God ever allow anyone to go to heaven? Reality is, is that when you die, you either go to heaven or go to hell. If you go to hell, it's not God's fault, it's your fault. If you go to heaven, it's not your fault, it's God's fault. You can't blame God if you go to, heaven, to hell, but you can thank God if you go to heaven. Amen. Francis Chan, in his book, Erasing Hell, he said this. He says, we serve a God whose ways are incomprehensible, whose thoughts are not like our thoughts. Ultimately, thoughts of God should lead to joy because those same thoughts design the cross, the place where, un where righteousness and wrath kiss. Would you have thought to rescue sinful people from their sins by sending your own son to take on human flesh? Would you have thought to enter creation through the womb of a young Jewish woman and be born in a feeding trough? Would you have thought to allow your created beings to torture your son, lacerate his flesh, with whips and then drive nails through his hands and feet. I'm almost sure I would not have done that if I were God. 
It's incredibly arrogant to pick and choose which incomprehensible truths we embrace. No one wants to ditch God's plan of redemption, even though it doesn't make sense to us. Neither should we erase God's revealed plan for punishment because it doesn't sit well with us. But in this text, Jesus not only gave a warning, but he gave a solution. The solution isn't self-mutilation or mortification because it's not enough. You can cut off hands and feet, and pluck out eyes, and it will not get you right with God. Jesus is saying this on his way to Jerusalem. Two times, Jesus has already told his disciples why he's going there. He's going to Jerusalem to be betrayed, to be rejected, to be beaten, to be crucified on a cross, to die, and then rise from the dead. Why would Jesus go to Jerusalem if he knew all those horrible things were gonna happen to him? The only reason why Jesus knowingly went to Jerusalem to suffer the way he suffered is to save you and I from hell. For three hours on the cross, Jesus endured the unspeakable agony, pain, and wrath of God for the sinners who don't deserve it. On the cross, Jesus was cut off. On the cross, Jesus was plucked out. And so the reality of hell shows us the extent of God's love in saving us. What the Bible teaches us about the reality of hell is important because it's the only way for us to see how much God really, really loves us. Hell does not tell us that God hates us. God tells us, or the, hell tells us that God loves us. And you don't have to, listen, you and I will never know, we'll never know how much God loves us until we know why he died on the cross for us. John Piper said it would be unspeakably magnificent that three hours on the cross could deliver one person from everlasting torments. That would be an unspeakable suffering on the cross if one person were saved, but Jesus didn't just save one person, but millions upon millions of people whose debt to God mounts up infinitely to the sky. What happened at Calvary is beyond all imagination in its beauty, mercy, and love. What hell does is it reinforces the glory, holiness, and love of God. If there is no hell, there is no need for the cross. But if hell is real, then we need the cross. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he tasted hell for us. And he rose from the dead so that we will never have to go to hell. All right, so what, what do we do with this? So glad you asked. Three things, really quick, promise. Number one, according to Jesus, since hell is real, the reality is that there are, is that there are billions of people in our world headed, here, headed there. If you believe the Bible and if you believe in Jesus, everyone who hasn't trusted Jesus for salvation will experience damnation when they die. We are told by missiologists that 157,690 people in our world die daily without a relationship with Christ. Two people die every second in the world without Jesus. And if there is no hell, then we can live however we want. But if hell is real, we don't have time to play games. Think in your mind of who you know that doesn't know Jesus. What will you do? What will you do 
to share Jesus with them. What will you do over these next few weeks as we have this opportunity during Easter? What will you do? Will you pray for them? Will you invite them? Will you plead with them? Will you share with them Jesus? Not only here in Naples, but the nations. And here's what I'm excited about. We have 91 middle school and high school students going next week to the nations to share the love of Jesus. If hell is real, and I believe it is, billions are headed there. Number two, since hell is real, we cannot afford to play with sin. Who was sitting there when Jesus shared these things? Judas Iscariot. And he's probably like some of you and say, amen, amen, cut off your hand, it's right, sin is bad, it's right. And where is Judas now? He's in hell. Just because you call yourself a Christian doesn't mean you are one. Good people go to hell every day. Safe people only go to heaven. Number three, since hell is real, according to Jesus, if you reject him, and choose sin, you're accepting hell and choosing wrath. If you are a Christian, this earth is as close to hell as you'll ever experience. If you are not a Christian, this earth is as close to heaven as you'll ever get. You can choose today. Not too long ago, I was flying home on an airplane. I love flying home. Uh, if you get the privilege of sitting next to me on an airplane, and I don't know you, I'm going to share Jesus with you. And I don't come out swinging and I'm a preacher. I don't do that. Because if I come out swinging with that, they put their earbuds in, it's over. <laughs> I don't come out like that. So I was talking to this lady. She started the conversation, believe it or not. We're talking about things. Somehow, we got on talking about spiritual things. It's amazing how God does that. And so I was talking to her about church, and she said, well, I used to go to church as a kid, went to the Catholic church, I grew up with college, and I, I really just don't, just don't believe in God. Esther, why? She said, well, my struggle is I can't rationalize God in science. And then I started thinking about all this suffering in, in the world and how, how can there be a, a good God and all this evil, bad stuff happen? And then the biggest thing, and here's what she said, the biggest thing I struggle with is hell. How can this loving God send people to hell? So it doesn't, it, she said, this doesn't make sense scientifically. So I looked at her and said, well, you know what, science has made a lot of improvements and they do it through observation and we're grateful for the improvements that science has made to humanity, but there's one thing that science cannot explain. She says, what is that? I said, love. Physics. Biology, astronomy, the scientific method does not explain why I love my wife and my children the way that I do. And I said, you know why I love them? Because there's a God who loves me. And he showed his love for me 
when he sent his son Jesus to die for me on the cross to save me from hell. And I said, Jesus doesn't send people to hell. Jesus saves people from it. And then we talked a little bit more. At the end of our conversation, I said, well, listen, ma'am. If you're right, there's no God. Then neither of us gain anything when we die. You just, you can just, you're right. We, we just go out of existence. If you're right. But I said, if you're wrong, if there is a God, and Jesus is God, and hell is real, when you die, you lose everything. And I said, everybody is betting on something. Every one of you is betting on something. Every one of you is betting on something when you die. You're either betting on your good, good behavior, your good works, you're betting on your legacy, your money. You're betting that maybe, just maybe, everybody goes to heaven. Or maybe you're betting on the fact that maybe there's no heaven or hell and I just cease to exist. But if you're wrong, eternity is a long time to be wrong. You know, when you die, every problem in your life will be over except for one your relationship with Jesus. And if you have one, then you're in heaven, but if you don't have one, you'll be in hell. And today I'm preaching out of love for you to tell you you don't have to go to hell. So here's what I wanna do. And I'd ask really kindly if, if people would just not leave in the next few moments. If you're here and you don't know that you're saved, you, you don't know that you're going to heaven. You, you don't know that if you died right now, you don't know where you would go. I'm not asking you today to get fire insurance, okay? I'm asking you, will you today doubt your doubts, doubt towards God, and put your faith and trust in Him? Would you do that? Would you just do it in this moment so that you can know that you are right with God? Maybe you say, you know, Pastor, I've been a Christian all my life, but I'm not sure I'm going to heaven. You call yourself a Christian doesn't mean you are one. Judas Iscariot thought he was a Christian, but he never had a relationship with Christ. Do you have a real relationship with Christ? I'm not talking about losing your salvation. Do you have a real relationship? If you don't, today's the day. If you are a Christian, but you're living and you're playing with sin, don't play with it. Cut it off, pluck it out, do what it takes. And if you're here and you've got someone in your life that you know is not going to heaven, would you pray with us today? Would you pray together? Maybe in a moment you just come down here and pray or where you are, sit in your seat, whatever you need to do, and just pray and ask God to save that person. But if you're here and you've never trusted Christ, I wanna give you an opportunity right now. Nobody's looking, nobody's looking around. So if everybody just bow your heads, close your eyes. Nobody's gonna look around. Nobody's gonna make fun of you. But if right now the heart, your heart is beating out of your chest and you're so, you know there's something wrong. It's Jesus. Would you pray with me? If you wanna trust Christ as your savior, you wanna make it sure today, would you pray this prayer with me? In faith, not to me, to him. In faith, would you say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. 
And I know that I'm broken. And I can't fix myself. But I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died for me. I believe that he rose from the dead. I believe that he's God. And I ask you, Jesus, to forgive me of my sins. I surrender my life to you. And I ask that you help me to live for you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. Now, nobody's looking around. Every head bowed, every eyes closed. I just want to be able to pray for some folks. At our 8.30 service, I saw nine people share with me they trusted Christ. If you today, for the first time, I don't care if you've been a member or been baptized, if today was the day you said, I know I got saved, I know I just gave my life to Christ, if that's you, would you raise your hand as high as you can raise it? It's as high as you can raise it. I see that. I see you. High as you can raise it. I see you. 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 All right, you can put your hand down. Now, those people who just raised their hand, that little card in the back of the seat, if you really meant it, write your name, get us a way to get a hold of you, say, I got saved today, or I trusted Christ today. You put that on that card. We'll help you with your next step. Father, for those who just trusted you as their Savior, would you give them boldness to make it known? And Father, for those of us who have family members or friends that don't know you, would you give us a burden for them? And would you help us to share your love with them in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's sing. If you feel the Lord is leading you to pray for someone, come down here. If you need to speak with a pastor, we have pastors down here in the front. If you need to talk with somebody, pray with somebody. If you just trusted Christ your Savior, those six or seven people, come down, let us know. We'd love to pray with you as we sing. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's Word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church. Go out and be the church. Have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.